Hi, this is Aaron Asrod, and welcome to the 113th episode of the Truth Island podcast. During times that are particularly difficult, we often wish for a drastic change or upheaval to occur that will somehow even the score or balance the playing field. Such thinking was most likely behind the storming of the Capitol on January 6th and those investing in GameStop and other risky funds. Sometimes the desire for a new government to take over can fuel irrational behavior. We often believe the more drastic the revolution that takes place, the better off we will all be. However, what if I were to tell you that history suggests otherwise? On January 21st, 1793, the former monarch of France was beheaded by his own people, which some historians consider to be the start of the French Revolution. By no means was King Louis XVI a good or wise ruler. After endless wars, France had fallen into serious debt, and yet he spent lavishly on, his, on decorating his palace in Versailles while his very own people starved. During the height of Louis's decadence, it was said that the peasants were forced to eat grass. King Louis is quoted as describing the Palace of Versailles as being a giant prison as he was afraid to leave beyond the palace's borders. In one of the most famous incidents, an angry mob led by women distraught at being unable to feed their children stormed the palace and came for him and his wife, Marie Antoinette. Frustrated by their monarch's complete apathy and disregard for their starving families, it is no surprise that many of France's working class believed that once their king's head was removed, all of their problems would be solved. But as history would show us, violent exchanges of power seldom benefit those most deserving. The subsequent years of turmoil that were to follow, also known as the Reign of Terror, were headed by a man by the name of Maximilien Robespierre, the son of a second generation lawyer. The provincial government that would take the monarch's place was led by a body called the Committee of Public Safety. Unlike the starving peasants unable to feed their children, the vast makeup of the committee comprised of France business elite, many of whom having been university educated. Although the business class in France was considered a part of France's third or lowest estate, the people leading the revolution often came from the top percentile of society, second only to France's first estate, the clergy, and France's second estate, the nobles. In many respects, the revolution came to be more about France's business class having to pay taxes, whereas the first and second estate were exempt. As the revolution waged on, the executions became even bloodier, especially among those of France's aristocracy, with over 17,000 people estimated to have died via the guillotine. While some on the Committee of Public Safety may have been influenced by more enlightened and compassioned leanings towards France's poor, the same cannot be fully said for Robespierre, who during his short reign in power created his own religion called the Cult of the Supreme Being. During a religious festival, Robespierre was described as wearing expensive clothing, platform shoes to make him appear taller, and was said to have descended down a mountain akin to Moses. Robespierre concluded the festival by having the heads of nine people removed. Aware that a demigod was taking over France, Robespierre was soon toppled by his own committee and sent to the guillotine himself. 
Unlike the United States, France would go through a series of restored monarchs, failed republics, and military dictatorships before emerging as a modern democracy nearly 165 years after the death of King Louis XVI. While power may have changed hands several times from one powerful group to another, little could be said for France's peasants who had simply fought to feed their children. Joining me to explain why radicalization never seems to produce really good results, I am once again joined by Alexander. Alex, I guess instead of chopping off all those heads, maybe they should have started using them for a change. <laughs> Does common sense ever play a role in revolutions? No, it does not. <laughs> it seems like a purely emotional expression. And from my understanding of the few revolutions that I'm familiar with, it's just a vicious cycle. There is this um, dark night of the soul period in between the exchanging of violence to the reformation of some legal document. And then after the success of the revolution, there is some semblance of peace. But then it starts back up again. And this is where I don't necessarily believe in revolutions in the classical sense of a revolution, where you have this idyllic understanding of the way humanity and society should play out and everything else needs to be sacrificed on the altar for that. In, in my experience, it's been a lot of elites that have caused revolutions. There's been very few actual populist heroes, in my opinion, that have risen up to the ranks. Maybe the closest would be Julius Caesar, but I think that's a little bit lionized. Like he was still part of the Julii family, which was one of the three major one of the three major families in Rome. But you know, he was flat broke, started from nothing. He was pretty low on the totem pole, began as a soldier, and then became essentially dictator of Rome. So I mean, that's pretty damn good. But it doesn't work. Yeah, you know, what's very interesting about these revolutionary figures is obviously they're not at, you know, they're not in like the absolute top. Otherwise, why would there be a revolution, right? You know, it's not like King Louis XVI is having a revolution against himself. <laughs> but, <laughs> you know, so they're, they're definitely not, but they're, they're definitely like third or fourth in line. And I think this is a misconception that we have. We often think of, you know, if you watch, if you like read the book or watch the play like Les Mis, it really makes it seem as if like the absolute, the guy sweeping the floor is the guy taking his broom and, and running and having, but it's not that dude. It's never, right. it's never that guy who's ever leading the charge or is ever going to have power. And I think we can kind of zoom into the French Revolution for a bit because uh, Robespierre, again, you know, his his grandfather was a lawyer, his father was a lawyer. All of the people in the in the committee of public safety were really a part of France's really wealthy elite class. They were part of the third estate, but and and so was everyone else. But they were the top of the top, the cream of the crop of the third estate. And what I notice in a lot of these revolutions is that you have one group of really wealthy people that is oftentimes resentful over having to pay taxes. Or, or some kind of like little arbitrary rule. And basically they take that frustration and make it seem like, no, no, this isn't about me paying taxes. This is about the peasants who can't feed their children. And they kind of like co-opt all the underclasses to sort of do their bidding. And 
what, what you'll see is that they're never they're never on the firing line, you know, like overwhelmingly in these in these revolutions, it's always uh, the peasants, it's always the working class that are kind of on the, the front of the lines. They're, they're the ones most at risk. They're the ones with bayonets. They're, they, are the, they are the ones that kind of pay the most deadly and the most bloodiest toll uh, in, these, in these sorts of uprisings. That's just a fact. In order to win a chess match, you need pawns. And they also are the most frequent. So that's exactly what this is about. And you know, to take maybe a little bit less of a cynical approach, which unfortunately I agree with you on, maybe they're unaware of how, maybe they're unaware of the unconscious motivations as to why they want a revolution. It could be an unconscious reaction to the quote unquote oppressive nature of their privilege. <laughs> For example, they feel oppressed because of taxes. So they, maybe they actually connect with that vocab word, not necessarily on the modus operandi or how it, how the oppression trickles down or what experience that type of oppression gives, but the word oppression can be a unifying vocab word is my point. So maybe they genuinely feel they're in the right, but you know, we've, we've all seen this in more simple explanations, right? So, okay, we live in a de democratic country for the most part, democratic republic country. In high school, there were moments where a particular class would take a vote. And immediately you start seeing factions splinter off the original idea or the original goal or the original power structure. And this is exactly what we're talking about, where one person doesn't necessarily want that. And so what happens, it's easier to get a unifying force to create a conglomerate that, that is this animus object, this like plasma object that hasn't really taken shape. And then off the voice of one particular person, it creates its own structure. And that's what this is. It's, you know, the person who's fourth in line, the reason they're fourth in line, first of all, is because they're desperate for power already, or they were given power and are terrified to lose it. So there we go. So that's the yes, base operation. Yes, that's a really important point. Yes, absolutely. You don't get fourth in line by just, you know, minding your own business and quietly waiting for the bus to come. <laughs> in anything, in anything. I don't, you know... I don't even care if it's fourth in line for charity. It's like, you know, I still have a skeptical eye, you know, and, you know, that's just a natural law of life and that's okay. You know, there's nothing wrong with that, but you, you cannot have a successful revolution without resources, period. And who has the resource? Typically the person who's higher up on the hierarchy for power, which means they have more sway to influence. So there's an exponential level of how these particular um, people in history that have more power are able to bend the will or the to shape the animus itself into the structure that they think makes the most sense. And it's off the backs of peasants. They're the ones that run into the, they are on the firing line because they're the ones being fired at. So it's like you need those pawns in order to win your chess game. And whether it's conscious or unconscious, this is just the way it works. I mean, there just hasn't been, let's take America, for example. America was not a populist ideology. In fact, we have this in writing in the original Senate debates, right? The original Senate debates, which by the way, the Senates weren't elected by this time. Yeah, right. They were all the elites of America. Mm -hmm. Yep, absolutely. So the main crafters like Jefferson or Madison, they would exchange comments, bringing up one of your idols, Aristotle, talking about how democracy is inherently flawed and they need to protect themselves, the landowners from the masses. This was part of the original design of what America would stand for, where elites were concerned that the masses were going to take their land. 
Yeah, absolutely. I, I think, you know, not to throw too much shade on the, the founding fathers, but you're absolutely right. Um, what's very interesting is that after the American Revolution, things for like the average, let's say, poor white person and slaves and women didn't change all that much. Um, in fact, like, you know, it, it would be a very long time, it would be, you know, several decades later that white men without property were allowed to vote. Like many states had laws saying that if you did not own property, you could not vote. And then it would obviously be many years later that, you know, slaves would be freed and they would be granted the right to vote. And it would be even more years later that women would finally be afforded the right to vote. So I, I want to give people like Robespierre, I, and I want to give the, the, mm. the Committee on Public Safety and the Founding Fathers some credit and say they probably did read a lot of Voltaire, they did read a lot of Montesquieu, right. and they were influenced by the Enlightenment, and they probably had some inclinations of Enlightenment ideas. And I, I give them credit again, like like we we discussed on a uh, a podcast a few episodes ago. You know, they they were ahead of the curve. Fine, mm -hmm. fair enough. Uh, may, maybe not as much with Robespierre because obviously he was kind of turning himself into a god, but um. I think that they that they were ahead of the curve, but where where I think that they're cognizant of what they're doing is that anyone that was on the on the committee of public safety, clearly they could have stopped at some point and said, "Hey, this woman who doesn't is not like there were women during the French Revolution who were not producing enough breast milk to feed their babies. Like if a woman doesn't get a, a certain amount of nutrition, she can't lactate, she can't produce milk. And these women were so were starving to death, and they couldn't actually breastfeed their own." babies wow all they all they would had to have done is just paused for a second and said hey let's put aside our like taxation issues for a moment and take care of that woman who can't lactate and properly take care of her baby or that guy who just had grass for breakfast and th that's kind of where i think that these people are sort of aware of the manipulation that they're doing. I don't think I don't think they're just naive and they're like, oh yeah, I was reading, you know, uh, Voltaire and Montesquieu, and I just, I kind of got caught up in this. I'm like, no, 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 no. You, you know, look outside your window and and see what the hell's going on there. So I think that these people are actively playing chess and they're actively sacrificing pawns with sort of callous intent. I think they don't mm -hmm. really care all that much, and I don't think. That I think they, they really know what they're doing, but they kind of hide behind the language. And I see this today, I like I this word that keeps popping up in politics today, grassroots. This is a grassroots movement. This is a grassroots movement. And I'm like, how can you have a grassroots movement when the people leading the movement are eating grass? <laughs> <laughs> That's a, you know, you bring up this, this incredible parallel um, or this metaphoric description of this, this imagery of gardening. I think it's no different than how they managed their gardens at um, Versailles, right? You have to prune. You have to find particular unruly branches of this organism and snip it out and let that die in order to keep the shape of whatever your intention is. And I think that this kind of mentality is a little bit of an elitist mentality where they feel they are the God's touch that needs to keep the structure. Therefore, for the betterment of all mankind, you got to go, Aaron. It, it reminds me, and again, I keep coming to this, I, this quote by Orwell, who said that many socialists, you know, Orwell was writing in, in the 1930s and 40s, and he wrote like many socialists have a huge uh, distaste of the, of the rich 
but they also despise the poor as well. Like, and then there's this idea like that they, 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 like, I, I could imagine these people in France being like, I hate that King Louis the 16th. I hate those nobles. I hate how they have this huge palace. I hate how they don't pay any taxes. I, I can see that distaste and I can see that hatred bub bubbling within them. But I could also imagine these people having disdain when some poor lady says, oh, could, could you spare some change, please? You know, I, I could see them being like, get, get away from me. You know, I could, I can kind of see that attitude in their fate. Like I look at their portraits, I look at their paintings and I'm like, I, I can kind of see that same level of disdain. And I've always felt that to be true of, of like certain actors in America today where they outwardly have wonderful rhetoric. They outwardly profess to be the champion of the working man. But I'm like, let me look at your fingers and see how many calluses you have, you know, on mm -hmm. your hands. Let me see how often, you know, you've been in the, you know, like where, you know, where were you when I was working at Wendy's or whatever? I say these questions because it's like, we need to be mindful of who's stirring up our passions, right? Like, like these people are very good at stirring up our passions. They're really good at riling us up. But I think it's always important to be like, well, wait a minute, what's in it for them? What exactly, mm -hmm. what are they gaining? Do they, do they really love me that much? Or is there some card that they're trying to play here for themselves? We do need to ask, where's where the conflict of interest? Um, because there's really, okay, there's really two ways to make a business work, right? Let's put it purely into a business paradigm here. There's volume or there's efficiency. And the problem with revolutions is on a scale of what's more utilitarian, you know, volume is typically where people go, right? To make a revolution happen because you need the masses, you need this emotional outburst. It needs to be totally encompassing 100% of the surface area of the conversation in order for it to appear somewhat stronger. Um, and that means that Guys like you and I, human beings, a little bit lower on the rung compared to Louis the, the 15th or whatever number he was, <laughs> um, are susceptible, are, you know, are targets, basically are susceptible to these types of uh, predation of, of ideology mm -hmm. because it's useful. So it's like, okay, now that we've determined that the most significant place for you to send your propaganda to incite a revolution is in volume then that puts us in the category of we should be extra careful. But no one really thinks about it that way. Well, I think one thing that we can start training people to do is, you know, when you have somebody, you know, particularly someone who's running for office and in that capacity, I think it's always important to create a bit of a, a checklist of like, well, what has this, how has this person impacted me? How have they impacted this community? How, what, what have, have, you know, have they been a physical presence here? And I think that's a lot easier to do once someone's been elected, right? Like once they, mm -hmm. once they've been elected, then you can be like, Hey man, you've been sitting in that seat for two years. I haven't seen you walk in the streets here anymore. You know, and I, I haven't, you, you haven't answered my email that I sent to you uh, eight months ago. So it's really easy to do that. And then when someone is running for office, I think it's really easy to say, has this person put in the time? And what I think it is, is that, you know, in New York City, everyone plays this game, whether you're a Democrat or Republican, and it's called the subway game. Okay. Anytime somebody is running for mayor, what do they do? They ride the subway for three weeks, cameras, and I, I'm just like you guys, every, every guy running for mayor rides the subway. And then as soon as they're elected, 
boom, that, that is that is done. done. Like Uber, Uber, Uber all the way. And I'm like, why is there no one out there that's calling that kind of behavior out? I'm like, you had time to ride the subway when you were running for office. Now that you're elected, suddenly, you know, you're Ubering it all the way. And what that means is that us, us in the quote unquote third estate, we need to be a bit more mindful and we need to hold these people accountable and say, hey, you know, I kind of see through your act, like, like, you're, you know, you're doing really nice riding the subway now. Let's see how you feel in a year about a year now riding the subway. How do you feel two years from now, three years from now? And what you want from your public official is you want to see that level of sacrifice. You want to see like they're, 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 they're hurting in some way in order to benefit you. And that's why you entrusted them with power because they're not in it to, to line their, their own pockets. And if the people of France would have said, Hey, it looks like these people, you know, in the public, in the committee of public safety, just don't want to pay taxes. Well, if they paid more taxes, then there would be probably more money to feed us, right? It's just it's just those simple questions. And I think that we can argue directly with elites or we can start talking amongst ourselves and start like teaching us to be more aware of when our passions are being riled up, when the, the wool is being thrown over our eyes, so to speak, you know? And I think I think I think what it requires is us to even have just longer attention spans. The longer our attention spans are, right. the longer we can remember, you know, we can remember, oh hey, you know, that guy's no longer riding the subway anymore. This is why finding good leaders is nearly an impossible task. You know, it's like a it's like a destiny moment in history when the right person steps in at the right moment and does the right thing. The problem with just even having conversations about revolutions is you're already constructing a social ladder for somebody if they want to take advantage. I mean, there's just no world that you can have any kind of conversation that's radical or innovative or whatever without dealing with these energies or dealing with these problems. So no matter how hard we try, there's no perfect system. There's always going to be people trying to take advantage. Okay. All, all well and good. The issue with suspicion too, and being overly educated and overthinking these discussions is twofold. It's a, it's a double-edged sword. One, you don't create an environment for the right person to be at the right time to do the right thing. Since you're so suspicious, right? You could just immediately tag somebody. Well, actually you're not in my income range. I don't care how much sense you make, or I don't care how much money you've given away or whatever, or the actions you've done. I don't care if you fought for civil liberties, so on and so on. You're not one of me. Therefore, I can't afford to believe in you. Well, I, I want to say something about, I think you bring up a good point with income range, right? And it's like, oh, well, you, you know, you're beyond my income range. Therefore, I don't trust you. And I think you're right in saying that we should just like, it, just because somebody's rich doesn't mean that we should just like completely write them off. However, if you take like a leader such as MLK, for example, I've seen pictures of his house. It's a really ordinary, modest looking house. It's just, it's just, it's really ordinary when you look at it. Like you would never know that like, oh, one of our greatest civil rights leaders lived in that house. It really looks like a regular Levittown house and you would never know anything. And I kind of find it funny and I find it interesting that one of the most impactful leaders that actually gets, you know, gives us a, you know, he, his birthday gives us all a day off. He actually just lived a normal middle-class person. When you actually look at his assets, when you look at his wealth, he lived. And I just, again, I'm not saying that um, just because you're wealthy doesn't mean that we don't trust you. 
But I am finding it funny right. that some of our most impactful figures, I'm not saying that they were poor, but I am saying that they were kind of like us. They, they kind of, and they had, and they spent a long time living like us. And this is where I come up with this idea with the guardian class is that when, when, and maybe let's say this happened to me, right? Like I've, I've ridden the subway the entirety of my life, but let's just say I go 10 years not riding the subway anymore. I just, I make it to the top 3% or top 1%. I just stop riding the subway. Even if I started off a good person, I might slowly start forgetting where I came from. If I'm riding in the back of an Uber XL in the back seat and they got nice XM radio playing and I got my, my warm cup of coffee and I look outside my window and I see some, some dude trudging, you know, like, you know, basically walking in the rain, I might start alienating myself from that. Like right. that, that door is actually shielding you from actually seeing you know, the real face of humanity, which is why I keep saying that, like, I think it's important, no matter how wealthy you are, you have to always have some foot in the real world. I think that, that that's a must. There's no way that we can get around this, where if you are, if you are taking our confidence, you got to have hair in the game for, you know, the same hair in the game as the working class. Like, you know, when, 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 when you're going to work, you need to feel that pain of that late subway. You got to feel it. You got to feel that pain. This way you'll fight even harder because you're like, man, I couldn't get to work on time. I embarrassed myself. You know, it's like, you need to feel that pain. And that's the only way we can do that is if we have systems in place that make sure that the people we are electing always have one foot in the game. This is why MLK was so dangerous, was because he had the brain of, he had a better brain than any elite. He was just as well educated. He could pull out quotations that strike to the heart of the matter in any situation. And yet his empathy was centered in the common man. That's why he was so special. And that's why we need more people like him. Now, the whole concept of alienation, there really should be a scale in terms of how people review power of relatability. And the more power you have, obviously, the more alienated you typically become. So in a way, what we're asking for is something that is so difficult, right? It's so difficult um, to, to be able to string together um, the, the webbing of different realities and different social, social economic status, different ethnic backgrounds, different personal experiences, all into one category where they can, you know, facilitate between those energies to make the most effective decision for the better betterment of everyone. So at the same time, someone who's educated, we also need to be not only you know, concerned kind of like a medical practitioner would be towards a patient. Hey, you're veering away. You're veering away from the center, but also understanding of how probably easy it is to just be swept away into the currents of alienation from just being involved in power. And this is where I think that we need more of a consequence, consequences, I think is really the key here. You know, I was talking uh, with my friend Joe about executive compensation. And we discussed this idea that when a company lays off massive amounts of employees or fires them, or, you know, they have to pay their workers less or any of these other things, there has to be a consequence for that CEO because that CEO has failed the people that he was, you know, he's the custodian of, the people that he was in charge of. And I think consequence is a good way of reminding, hey, 
when everyone else fails, you fail. And I think I think when we when we think of that, when we think of alienation, what ends up happening is, let's just say that you're in a congressional district and everyone is unemployed, everyone is suffering, everyone is doing terribly, but your salary does not change. Your your other business interests are not changing. Well, the model the model of your power is tiered in such a way that the, the, your constituents could be as poor as dirt and suffering like there's no tomorrow, but that's not really affecting what's going on in your right. world. And I think the way that we kind of strike at this is that there has to be some type of consequence where if the people, whether you're in charge of a company, whether you're in charge of a congressional district, there has to be some kind of system of accountability where you're suffering, you're suffering right alongside your people. And people are like, oh, we'll just vote them out. We'll vote them out. Okay. I mean, hey, that's a fantastic idea, by the way. I love it. But what happens when you vote them out and they're just replaced by someone else who's just as powerful and just as corrupt? So I, I think that this is where we have to look at fig figuring out the system, like kind of retweaking the system along with what right. Plato said, where the guardians, the custodians of our democracy have hair in the game. And when people are bleeding, they're bleeding right alongside with them. It's so important that we understand how the whole system operates. Listening to you just now brought up a few images in my mind. How do we know, if, if we look at power kind of like an empty chamber and a gun, right? And we're putting potentially something into that chamber to be used. We need to understand the way the entire system is structured. Like, I think it would be so incredibly useful to have some sort of infographic that shows the like branches in a tree, the way power is expelled across the United States, who responds to whom and why that particular person voting for that particular job is critical to the environment of whatever branch we're looking at. Because I can't tell you for the life of me. Right, I can't tell you for the life of me which um, municipal jobs are critical to the su to supporting the success of someone a little bit more public, right? Like a congressman or someone in in, in my home state, right? I, I couldn't tell you like how that works. I don't know how information changes hands. I just assume by pointing to that one that one finite piece of our enormous government system by changing that we change everything, but it's just. I just think that this is part of the, the fallacy of how Americans view politics and also why revolutions are taken advantage of. It's because when you look at the revolution, you're thinking top four people, right? Those top four people is all we need to change. We put so-and-so at the top of the governmental change, then maybe you know we'll get what we want. But maybe that's maybe we should be looking at it more inversely, right? Or it's like, well, let's start at the bottom. If we were to build a foundational base at the bottom and make that our quote unquote guardian class of this pursuit of this ideal, I wonder how much that would change the demographics of those at the top. Because the whole argument is it trickles down, right? And this is their belief. This is why they believe they can have uh, people with less power suffer because they're the custodians of resource. They're the custodians of power. They're the custodians of legality. So they can watch people suffer and be like, it doesn't affect the custodian. Therefore, you know, the plant will still grow. I'm the gardener. I'm watering the tree. It doesn't matter how wild it is. I'll prune it where I need to in order to keep the structure. 
I, I wonder, what, what do you think of that? If we were to focus on that, you think that would change? Absolutely. I, I think inverting, you know, turning the triangle upside down is fantastic. I, I think that like the more power that, that you put at the base of that triangle, then the more accountable the top of the triangle has to be. It has to, it can't just, because you can't just section off the top of the triangle and say, good luck to you guys, you know, we're, we're, whatever happens, because what you've done is you've actually created two tiers of reality. You've created a fabricated reality where one group of people lives and, and, and they're, they're basically not beholden to gravity, right? They're, they're not actually right. beholden to the physics of gravity. Like economy is sinking. Oh, that doesn't mean anything. It's like, again, the stock market's doing just fine. That reality is a separate reality to the unemployment <laughs> right. rate. It's just, everything, I, I think trickling up consequences and trickling up prosperity is really the way to go. Everything. If people on the bottom are doing extremely well, and, and again, you know, there's this argument like, okay, if we capped executive compensation wouldn't that just you know limit uh motivation and that's a good you know it's a good discussion to be having but what if executive compensation was a ratio to the bottom of the triangle like you earn five times mm -hmm. as much as your lowest paid employee the incentive is to increase the prosperity of the bottom of the triangle and as the bottom of the triangle has more prosperity the top of the triangle will also have more prosperity because it's a ratio it's not it, you know so so like if you want your salary to grow you got to make sure that the people on the bottom are also having their salary to grow and that that actually just strikes at innovation you know you want you want the people if the people in congress want a raise well everyone needs to be doing a lot better so we're all paying more taxes and then then you can justify getting yourself a raise you know you know even though i know a lot of these guys don't even care about their salary they make money in other ways but like and that's a problem that's that's right. exactly the problem Equity. i would love i would love to see the people in the House and in the Senate just living off the, you know, 185000 or whatever it is that they earn a year. I'd like to I mean, that's more than enough money. You, you realize you realize that the federal, um, you know, like per capita income is something like 39000 a year or something. I'm is like, that low? yeah, it's yeah. that low. It's like people are, you know, these people who are like, like if you were elected to the Senate, you are already earning like, you know, six, seven times, just, just your salary. Forget about all the business interests and other things that you have going on on the side. Just your salary alone is already putting you in the like, you know, top tiers of society. And it's like, that's the kind of stuff that we need to see. Like if you want a raise, well, then the people in your district need to be doing better. And that people may think, man, this is all good and dandy and idealistic, but I think we don't have a choice at this point. I think we've seen the dangers of, you know, and I think the French Revolution is an example of when your ruling class is completely severed from your peasant class. And the only way to fix this problem is to kind of sew that head back onto the corpus. 100%. Now, I might argue against the manner in which you were describing that model. Of course, that would be up for debate. But having a symbiosis between the two ends of the spectrum was something that we had until recently. This whole rise of this new American aristocracy is a huge issue. Yes. We, we used to have this booming middle class where you had so much lateral movement between choices in life. And that is fleeting. That is fleeting very, very fast. I think um, Noam Chomsky um, released this uh, documentary called Requiem for the American Dream. Yeah. Yeah. Which is just will blow your mind. Like if you can get through the first 30 minutes without having to take a break, <laughs> just to soak in that information power to you. But 
that's what made America amazing. And we need to get back to that. Having that symbiotic tie is, is absolutely critical. And in terms of the senators, of all the people representing us in government, the senators in the House should be exactly that. They should be the most connected to us. They're the ones who are supposed to be you know, going out to their constituents and shaking hands and going to multiple galas, not, not um, you know, bunkered down by, by documents rushed to their desk. They're supposed to be the ones engaging. We used to be able to go to Capitol Hill right. to go and shake their hand and make arguments for specific legislative choices. That's fading. One of the so one of the things that I think kind of accelerated this is a, a Supreme Court case called Citizens United, oh, and so big. What ends up happening is that you have all of this money going, you know, like, like basically there used to be a rule that like your large donors, your small donors, you know, they can only donate X amount of money. And that's, that's just it. But what ends up happening is that corporations are able to kind of bypass this and through lobbying and through gifts and other, other sorts of ways are able to make these huge campaign donations. And what ends up happening is that you have people that are, are, are basically riding golden elevators to the top of, of the yeah. tower. And I think that the way you kind of combat the golden elevator is you allow regular people to start running for office. You know, people, people have asked like, you know, well, Aaron, why don't you run or something? Well, you know, maybe just my girlfriend, <laughs> but you know, like, make like a great Senator. Thank you. Honestly, I, I, I appreciate you it. But one of the things that I have to consider always is like, damn, I don't really have money to, to do something like that. You know, are you kidding me? Yep. Like, like, are you kidding? Like where, where the heck would I get that kind of money? And so, right. The way that you kind of combat that is that if we had more public pools of, of funding, if you were rich, you know, like if we kind of could level the playing field a bit more where we gave people like regular folks an opportunity to run for office without having all of these donors or to be independently wealthy and so forth. Like if we gave like just the average person a chance to run for office, which I think is more akin to like Athenian democracy, which is what we right. want to go back to. We want to be like Athens where, you know, uh, one day you could be working in the farms, the next day you could be, you know, the next representative. That's what we need to start doing so that when you could run for office and, and be rich or something, but like the second that you're losing touch with reality, the second that you're getting a little bit too alienated, the second you're kind of enjoying that latte a little bit too much in the back of that Uber is the second that some guy riding the subway says, hey, I'm running for office. I think I can take your job and I think I can do a much better job than you do. And the only way that we can start getting back to that is first, we got to overturn Citizens United. There's just there's, there's no way around this. And we have to start creating more public pools um, to finance campaigns of regular folks. I think, I think like GoFundMe accounts and all this other stuff, I think those are great things where you can launch a campaign with small donors. Like if you could just have, you know, a, a bunch of small do donors, you know, I don't know how true this is, but they say, they say that Bernie Sanders' entire campaign operation is just people donating 20 bucks here and there, you know, maybe, you know, mm -hmm. again, I, I can't say how, how true that is. I want to believe that that's true. Um, right. But there's something really beautiful about that. And I think that's the kind of democracy that we need to return to. The damage that our democracy took the day Citizens United was passed is just, it's just astounding. Now, I'm pretty sure it passed around what, like 2007? Yeah, I forgot the year, but it was, right? I think it was in the 2000s. Yeah. Because I have a memory being in high school history class discussing when Citizens United was passed and the whole concept of super PACs which I never knew existed. I didn't know that there was limits um, 
on the ability to fund somebody for a particular reason. And there was a debate in my history class where, you know, we discussed the possibility of America being dead and how that this particular blow was striking at the core of what made American democracy so good because we had it guys. Yes, we were committing war crimes across the world. Absolutely. I'm not denying any of that, but we had it. We had it before Citizens United. There was a somewhat there was somewhat of a balance, right? Where it didn't feel so radioactive and out of control like we have today. We have to get rid of that. Now, as to how we do that, you have to be inside or you have to cause a revolution. And I don't think a revolution would be useful in this case. I don't, I think it has to be done within the inside because I think in a lot of ways, our government is the best so far that we've ever come up with. It's veering towards the cliff, but we're still in this, classic, beautiful vehicle of government that still can be saved. Well, I, I don't think it can come from the inside because the people really? who are already in power are pre- like, I, I just looked it up. It was passed in 2010. So the people, okay. yeah, yeah. So the people who um, are already in power are already benefiting from it, you know? So like, th- are they going to really cut off their left foot? Like that's, that's what they're like, well, you know, if we do this and then they're, they're incumbents, right? Everyone in Congress right now is an incumbent just by virtue of holding the office. So if you overturn Citizens United, all of these guys and gals are thinking to themselves, well, that's just going to make my opponent right. that much stronger, right? That that's what they're thinking. They're thinking that. So the only way, and again, I don't think a, a French revolution is the solution to this, right. but I think we need to have more people running on the outside, you know, and maybe they're as poor as dirt, but we need more people running on the outside. And, and here's, here's one way that we can kind of do this. I think that something like YouTube is an great equalizer. Most mm-hmm. people get their information online. So you don't need as much money to run these like fancy, like CNBC, um, commercials and stuff like that. You know, I think you could, if you have a captivating, a captivating voice and a captivating ideas, I think all you really need is some friends and a YouTube channel and you can run far. You can spread your message uh, pretty darn far. So I think we, we need more people from the outside doing that kind of work. And then once they get onto the inside, then they can be like, Hey, I came up through this ladder, I'm going to make sure that this is the new ladder that all of us are using moving forward. So, and again, I don't think there has to be anything that's crazy. There doesn't have to be violence. There doesn't have to be anything bloody about this. It's simply saying like, hey, we're going to start looking at our candidates and we're going to start voting for people who look like us, live like us, breathe like us, and basically walk in the same shoes that we all wear. It describes to me what Tulsi Gabbard's strategy is at the moment. She's founding her own podcast and having on political guests. And, you know, it's the, it's the right way to do it, using new media in order to captivate the right amount of influence in order to influence what you believe is, is the most right. Um, you know, we're going to we're going to be seeing that uh, that's going to be the future of politics. Absolutely. But isn't that within the inside? I mean, it, it can't just be one person like we both agree with that. It has to be a group of people, right? That, that uh, goes in and is positioned strategically enough where these changes can be made. Now, in terms of my level of optimism of Citizens United being overturned is pretty much zero, honestly, zero. I, like that would be such a good day if that could possibly be, be removed, but you're right. Why would they do that? And there's no incentive to, 
There's no incentive for them to do that. If they have total nuclear level dominance on their opponents that try to run against them because of their funding, they don't want to shorten that gap. They don't want to make it competitive. So, you know, it's a, it's the big existential problem that America is going to have to face now or 50, 70, 100 years down the road. It's going to be so much more ugly. Now, this is where the bottom of the pyramid has to step up to the plate. I actually think that the bottom of the pyramid has a lot of work that they need to do as well. And I don't care if you're a teacher driving a truck. You know what? I'm sorry. Just be a little bit, be 15% more aware of what's right. going on in the world. Okay. You have, you know, I, I get it. Oh, I have, I have three kids. I can't pay. Yes, you can. Yes, you can. And, <laughs> and, and what I'm saying is that what happens is that let's say you have somebody who runs for office off YouTube, runs off their popularity, and then they get elected. Now the bottom of the pyramid needs to step up and hold that person accountable and say, Hey, you promise to overturn Citizens United. Now, just because that doesn't suit you right now, you promised that before you were running for office. And that's re constantly reminding those, get on their Twitter, get on their, you know, on their thing, like, hey, you promised to do this. When's that happening? When's that happening? When's that happening? You have to nag. You, ba you basically have to nag and you, and you have to do it in a very vocal way. You, you, have, you have to, you know, like if you send a private email or whatever, you'll get, you know, and I, I've done this before. I've actually sent emails to Congress people and I get that generic, your issue is very important to us. We are constantly, and I'm like, you know, great, absolutely. But we all have the power to, to be vocal and don't attack these people. Don't say, like one of the worst things that you can do is say the most egregious, like slanderous, nasty things. That actually weakens your cause. When you do right. stuff like that, it weakens your cause. But if you're really methodical and say, when is this getting passed? When is this getting passed? When is that law being changed? When are you uh, bringing that up? When you bring that article up in the house? If you're very methodical and you don't attack their character and you don't, um, you know, be like, oh, this person is cheating on this or, you know, forget, it. I don't care about your love life. I don't care about, you know, any of that stuff. Be very methodical in what you're asking of these people. Be like, I want this law passed and I want it passed right now. And that's where at bottom of the pyramid people have to kind of step up to the plate. We can't, we can't get lost in all in, we can't like get lost in the most sensationalized things. And this, this is what happened in Rome is that they just kept on talking mm -hmm. about the orgies and the, and the, and the crazy stuff and, and getting us all riled up. And, and it's like, no, 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 no. I don't care about that. I care about uh, what are you going to do about this farm over here? What are you gonna do about this public works project? We have to right. be really on on top of it we have to be really on point and 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 doing that and that's that's why this can't work without the bottom of the pyramid actually stepping up to the plate and the question i want to ask you alex is do you think bottom of the pyramid people actually have the discipline to pull this off do, do you no, think that not at the moment i don't i think the fact that we don't even really study civics in school anymore is case in point you know, we breeze over the three, the three branches of government, but no one points to how in the very uh, school system that they're in, there are a series of different municipal uh, government buildings that they have direct access to right now, right now. And that they could look at one particular road that they drive over to get to school and start there. Why isn't this road fixed? It's a main artery in our, in our town. Why isn't our local mayor doing something about this? start there. I mean, the amount of times I wish people spent more time on history and civics just so that they could get a more macro timescale. Mm -hmm. um, because we're so close-minded in terms of 
our, our scope and our range of how we view problems. But if we were to look at it in a multi-generational scale, right? If we were to look at it over a period of thousands of years, we can take moments in history, point to it and say, well, you know what? Funny thing about that French Revolution, right? Funny thing about that. The way they went about that revolution didn't work. Why? Now we can understand how government should be panning out, not what we're force-fed to believe. So at the moment, no. I think, I think the systems purposefully obscure the ability to have a belief and the efficacy of the voter. Like, mm -hmm. I don't think the voter believes so much that their vote matters. And that's all a ploy. I right? like because, that. No, I, I think you're yeah. right, man. I, I think that in some ways we are kind of conditioned or taught apathy at some, at some, I think it's actually yeah. something that we, we learn. And I've always said that, like, if you watch our media and you watch our television, we always demonize teachers as being boring or disconnected. And, you know, as a, as a former teacher myself, I always say, we're actually saying the most darn important things that can actually change your life. Like we're, we're actually <laughs> teaching you about the French revolution. We're actually teaching you about all of these like patterns, but the media and the MTV generation just, Oh no, no. Those people don't know anything. Those are just poor bureaucrats, pure civil servants. And they, they, they don't know anything. Just don't listen to that. And I'm like, we're actually by, by virtue of these depictions, we're actually taught apathy we're taught apathy and we're taught like the only way to make something is reading like some msnbc article that that teaches you about like you know millionaires under 30 or something and like like the only things that we're taught of is like wake up early and exercise and you know like like make goals yeah, yeah yeah like, like wake up early exercise like make goal and i'm like that's important and all but like sorry there's like other issues here that that, that we need to kind of collectively address and you know, I think apathy is really baked into the system. And mm. it's basically like we're kind of taught this thing where it's like, just worry about yourself and your family and so forth. And look, hey, I think that's important. Don't get me. And we talked about this before. You got to take care of yourself and your family. Absolutely. But then you got to start having a little curiosity about like, what's what's above the other mountain and just taking a look at how your other brother is doing and, and, and seeing seeing what, what's going on, because you're going to reach a glass ceiling. I feel like if right. you're just completely me, 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 I'm going to do me. You reach what I call the glass ceiling, where it's like, ah, okay, now 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 I've reached a point where I can't go any further. I'm not getting that promotion. I'm not getting that raise. I'm, I'm not moving up. Like, and, and once you hit that glass ceiling, you have no choice but to start turning laterally and start working with the people who are also reaching that same glass ceiling and kind of demanding more. If we were to take this from a literal sense, apathy is literally the differentiator here. So, yeah. okay, you start a revolutionary, right? I come along, I throw in a few good ideas, but you know, I'm not leading it, you're leading it. I commit the very things that get you to succeed in your revolution. Uh -huh. That doesn't mean I'm gonna be allowed in the doors and, and, and you know, into the Senate floor to make the decisions on how the new government's gonna be set up, sure. but I can still contribute to it. So already there's, to take it literally, Everyone who's involved isn't going to be involved at the end of the day. I, no, ex no, this is exactly right. I mean, look, man, like, you know, Trotsky, like, risked his life during the Russian Revolution. And he was just Britain, just like Stalin came to power and said, done. you're done. You're done. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and he had to flee to Mexico. And, you know, it's like that, that that's like an example. And I see, believe me, man, I see so much of, the, of that stuff going on that, like, like you have these powerful 
charismatic people that are dying to use you. They're not dying to use you right. for their for their causes. But then once they come to power, oh, you're you're just vying for my seat now. You're you're a loose thread, and 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 that you actually right. see this pattern in, in like, you know, with the exception of the American Revolution, you actually see this exact pattern going on. The revolutionary leader takes over, and then what do they do? They have a freaking purge of everybody that helped them become <laughs> the revolutionary leader. All of them do it. They take power and then they're like, oh shoot, I'm surrounded by a bunch of competition. You all got to go to the gulag. You, you're, you're right. all, you all got to go. Gotcha. And, and I think the reason why the American Revolution was the most successful out of all of these revolutions is George Washington, you know, right. he just had exactly. to step down. It was just, it was like, dude, your, your time's over, man. You, time for John Adams to take over. That's what we need to have. We need right. to have, when you're having any kind of um, organized effort, it's never. It should never be around um, a charismatic leader. That's a mistake. Mm-hmm. If your revolution or your idea, or whatever, is built around a charismatic leader, run away, run away. You you are dealing with a narcissist. You are dealing with a very dangerous person. So most likely, yeah. Right. What you want to do is you want to champion ideas so that the idea is transcending the person. That's, exactly. That's the goal. You're not fighting for like, you know, you're not fighting for Aaron. You're not fighting for Vladimir Lenin. You're not fighting for Mao Zedong. You're fighting for this idea. And the second that that leader no longer represents the idea, then that leader needs to go. That's it. It's just right. as simple as that. As soon as the idea comes first, the leader is all the way in the back. We've lost that. Yes. Right? We've lost that because this is something that the American Revolution accomplished. Now, Absolutely, they were apathetic towards a bunch of different demographics. Obviously, mm-hmm. we had to have a civil war for that. Um, and you know, even still, after that, Jim Crow, everything. So they didn't really succeed in totality, but they arguably were one of the most successful in terms of an incremental step. I mean, George George Washington <laughs> stepped down. Everyone wanted him to be king. He's like, no, I don't want to do that. I don't yes. want to be president for life. He chose to do that. I mean, that's pretty amazing. We've lost the, the concept of stepping up when the ideal isn't met. We put the focus on the individual. Oh, impeach the person, right? Impeach the person, not strike at the heart of how our ideas aren't being met, how our standards aren't being met. We put it all on individuals, yes. for better or for worse. You know, we vote for individuals. We don't even, a lot of people don't even look at what policies people vote for. You know, it's a popularity contest. And we've we've become apathetic to that. That's the numbing of the the, the American ideal, I think, and that's why I, revolutions don't work. I, I yeah. think I think what we all need to do, at the very least, is I think that you know I, I'm an optimistic guy, but this is the one area where I think we need to all be a bit more cynical. We have to any time that you've got a charismatic speaker that's promising you this, that, and the other thing, we kind of have to always just be a bit more reserved and say, let's let's let let let's see what happens. Let's see you do those things. Let's see you, let's see you get what you're promising us. And I think if we all kind of have that reservedness, if we all have a little bit of cynicism and we start disconnecting the ideas from the people, well, now we can, we, and, and, you know, and, and then when somebody is not fulfilling on their ideas, we can just simply say, hey, nothing personal, but you kind of got detached from the very thing that we elected you to do. Alex, thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you, as always. This concludes the 113th episode of the Truth Island podcast. I'm Aaron Azrod.